I'll, I can speak louder, I can do that. Now I just feel like I'm shouting. It's Friday, September the 1st, 2017, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darroch, contributing editor at Dutch News and Apple Tart Freeloader, and with me today are Molly Quell, contributing editor and censor-in-chief at Dutch News, and Pal Peters, Silk Road Drempel Dealer. How was your Apple Tart? It was delicious. Really nice apple pie. Thank you for yeah. fetching that from the bakery. You Can you tell our apple. listeners why you received an apple pie from us? Uh, yes, because I'm very old. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was my birthday this week, but I didn't have to bring my own apple tart, which was a bonus. Yeah, that's yeah. because so I'm not fully is, integrated. Yeah, this is not a fully integrated group no. of people. Yeah, Indeed, I think. Yeah, we are open to other cultures. Yes, particularly other cultures in which other people pay for your birthday cake. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So basically, all other cultures besides the Dutch. I think. Well, congratulations. Thank yes. you. This week we've got updates on the summer egg scandal, the girl who took the exam board to court after failing French, and the ongoing coalition talks. In our discussion, we'll ask what the Dutch authorities can do to stem the tide of fake news. In some housekeeping news, much to the chagrin of about eight regular trolls, the Dutch News comments section was closed this week. After years of moderating comments on the site, the team made an editorial decision to close the comments on nearly all articles. In the future, comments will be opened up occasionally on articles which the editorial team thinks might generate interesting and civil discussion. So guys, any comments on the lack of comments? I had a comment on this, but it's been deleted. (laughs) But our readers are welcome to send us messages via Facebook and Twitter and engage in the commenting section of Facebook page. Absolutely. The outgoing Dutch government has reportedly close to collapse this week in a row over teachers' pay in the budget. Labour leader Lodewijk Asser, who is still social affairs minister until a new coalition is formed, threatened to walk out of the lame duck cabinet, taking his team of ministers with him, unless Mark Rutte agreed to raise teachers' salaries. Primary school teachers lag as much as 20% behind their secondary school peers. Asser told News here on Wednesday he had secured a promise of a substantial funding package for teachers' pay, but stopped short of saying how much it was, and he also said he'd negotiated a smaller amount for the armed forces. The deadline to submit the draft budget to the Council of State, which checks that the plans are compliant with existing law, was on Friday, and the spending package is due to be announced by the King on Printersdag, which is September the 19th. It's not Prince's dog, it's budget. <laughs> budget Tuesday. Budget Tuesday, yeah. But what I don't understand is Usher wants something in the next budget, even yeah. though the next budget will not be carried out because we will have a new government. Yeah, but there'll be a budget uh, agreed in September for next year because it always is. Yeah, mm. but we, after but that we have a new part. government and they will yeah. alter the budget that is agreed upon. Yeah, but more to the point that the balance of powers in the parliament means that the outgoing government doesn't have a majority, so therefore it can just be outvoted. So this is all symbolic. I think so, yeah. yeah. I think it's brinkmanship by us, isn't he? He's trying to be an opposition leader while he's in government at the same time. Sort of trying to have his apple tart and eat it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's much better to have your apple tart and eat it. <laughs> um, so, Gordon, if the caretaker government collapses while a new government is being negotiated... I assume this leaves Paul in charge. Like, who's in charge of the country? <laughs> this is the thing that I'm really intrigued to, to, to know the answer to. Usually when a government falls, then the caretaker government takes over. Or if we're already negotiating the next government and then the old government collapses, what does that leave us with? Who, who's running the country? Caretaker, caretaker government. Yeah, caretaker of caretakers. A broom cupboard government. It's government inception. Yeah, yeah. Well, presumably it would just be Mark Rutter and Fefe Day running the country on their own as a minority government with a fifth of the seats. Which is impossible. Yes, exactly. That that seems like it's going to be a productive way to run a country. Let's hope that Belgium doesn't invade during this time. Well, I've seen the Belgian roads 
they can't. <laughs> <laughs> and they still have to negotiate a new government and they take even longer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. <laughs> Belgium's trying to make a government in the Netherlands. Wow, that would be anarchy. Um, are there any updates on the coalition talks this week, Gordon? Uh, no. Probably well, there is one. Uh, it was leaked out that the coalition parties want to get rid of the referendum law. Ah. Oh, yeah, I did see something about this. Yes. Yeah. We had this referendum law and, mm. of course, we had the uh, referendum on the Ukrainian association treaty with mm. the uh, European Union. Well, which went against the government. So which went the against the, the government, yeah. so now the government wants to scrap the law. However, it's a D66 crown jewel, right? Yeah. A referendum. But this law only allows a non-binding yeah. referendum, yeah. even though D66 wants it binding. Yeah, that was one of their manifesto points, wasn't yeah. it, in the election campaign? So instead, it is rumoured that they are going to trade this referendum law into a elected mayor. Which I... I sort of agree with. I mean, I think it's kind of strange here that they don't elect the mayor. It yeah, does seem a little but weird. But did not try elected mayors a few years ago and it didn't work out? Yeah, then the government failed. Well, yeah. the government's going to fail anyway, yeah, so who cares? So this, is, yeah. this is great. So they're actually writing their collapse into the coalition agreement. Yeah. Well, yeah. it'll keep the politics section of the Dutch news podcast an interesting place for the upcoming In. years. Uh, before they go with the binding referendum, they should maybe talk to the U.S. state of California, which has this absurd binding referendum law, which is the reason that nothing can ever get done there. You <laughs> can't raise taxes without having a referendum yeah. on it. Yeah. And it turns out that people don't like to vote to raise taxes. Strange that, yeah. yeah. Shockingly. Yeah. From one train wreck to another, if you commute to work with the NS, don't expect to get a seat during the morning rush hour. That warning was issued this week by the National Rail Service operator to its passengers. Due to an increase in ridership, the National Train Service expects overcrowding on its trains, especially during the morning commute. The service expects to transport 35 million passengers in September. The month after the summer holidays is always the busiest, according to NS, and as employment increases after the recession, more and more people are using public transit to get to work. NS advises that passengers try to shift their schedules so they are not catching a train during the busiest period, 7.30 until 8.30 in the morning. So what is DNS doing uh, to alleviate the congestion? Telling people not to ride the trains in the morning. Mm. Oh. That's what they're doing. So just don't go to work. Yeah, don't train. go to work. Work yeah. from home. That's what their suggestion mm. was. Um, no, they've added 58 new trains and they've extended capacity on existing routes by adding more cars to trains during the busy period. But according to NS, the rail system is operating at near capacity. So there's just not much else they can do. This isn't the space in the country. Yeah, they see very just, more rail It turns out or... you have a tiny, tiny country, most yeah. of which is underwater. So you can't build so, more train track. Uh, what I think is the most curious thing about this is that people expect a seating place in rush hour. I mean, yeah. if you go by car to your work in rush hour, you expect to be in a traffic jam in whatever big city in the world London, Paris New Tokyo. York if you tra- Tokyo if you mm. travel by metro in rush hour mm. you're not going to have a seat right. we should just get used to that I think it's just a hazard of living in a prosperous country where people have jobs and have to get to them Yeah. the solution really is just to sack lots of people or have unemployment go up that'll reduce that would be right. the that best solution yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah. there was some discussion last year about uh, trying to move class start times for university students to shift mm. some of this so there's been some discussion but the reality is is that employers are not just going to randomly start Start their start times at 11 o'clock in the morning in order to accommodate the NS. In egg news now, statistics agency CBS says sales of eggs in the Netherlands are back to normal after the industry suffered a 36% decline in sales following last month's Vipranil scandal. All eggs were taken off supermarket shelves in August when it emerged that a delicing company called Chickfriend had used the banned pesticide. The Food Safety Board NVWA decided to close 281 chicken farms because of this. Health Minister Edith Schippers came under attack in a debate in Parliament, which was recalled from their summer break, 
when it was revealed that the NVWA had received tips for, that Vibranium was used on two occasions. Yeah, and these tips, uh, they actually came from um, people who'd worked, or, or a guy who ran a company that worked with a chick friend. Right? Yeah, so a whistleblower. A whistleblower, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they'd ignored it. And the other one was mm. coming from Belgium. Yeah. Well, that's why they, well, that's why they ignored that. that. Yeah. Mm. That at least makes sense, yeah. But how much has all this cost the poultry industry in the Netherlands so far? Well, it's estimated that the scandal cost farmers 33 million euros. Uh, they had to destroy the unsold eggs, and in some cases they had to kill all their chickens. The impact for the entire food chain is approximately 150 million euros. But according to CBS, this is excluding the damages to export sales, which is the largest part of um, egg production in the Netherlands. And how many companies are still like closed or affected by this? NOS uh, reported yesterday on uh, Thursday that still uh, 144 chicken farms are closed, related to the Vipernil scandal. Um, well, as mentioned, this was originally 281, but they have been closed for almost a month now. So the damage to their companies will be very, uh, very significant. Yeah, and uh, a lot of the problem is uh, with uh, the market in Germany. That's uh, there's a little doubts as to whether that will recover, whether the Germans will start importing Dutch eggs again. Right? So, yeah, yeah, the egg scandal yeah. has spread to at least 22 yeah. countries uh, in and out the European Union. Um, yeah, for example, Ukraine and Oman have banned uh, egg imports from not only the Netherlands but Belgium, Germany, and France as well. But according to a spoke, uh, spokesperson of the European Commission. However, the danger to public health is extremely low. Finally, the Dutch statistics agency, CBS, agrees with what internationals have known since they've moved to the Netherlands. The Dutch just don't work very much. A report out this week found that the Dutch work the fewest hours in the European Union. Dutch men, on average, work 36 hours a week, while Dutch women only clock 26, mostly due to women holding more part-time jobs. Compared to the rest of Europe, only Spain, Croatia, Greece, and Italy work fewer hours on average, but that is mostly attributed to high levels of unemployment in those countries. Amongst those with jobs, they all work more hours than the Dutch. The Dutch do, however, have higher levels of employment, as 7 in 10 men and 6 in 10 women are employed in either part or full-time work. According to CBS's chief economist, Peter Hein van Mulligan, the lower hours aren't due to laziness, but to efficiency. Because labor productivity is high, the Dutch can allow themselves to work less, he said. So, Paul, what do you think? Dutch people, lazy or efficient? Well, I can only speak for myself, and I'm definitely lazy. So. <laughs> there you have it. Here at the Dutch News Podcast, yeah. Dutch people are lazy. I do not deny it. I'm yeah. lazy. Yeah. I do think that there is something to be said for the the sort of cultural difference here. I mean, I do think compared to other places that I've lived, the Dutch are more likely to work to live as opposed to live to work. Mm. And they don't sort of put as high a value on their, I guess, own personal sort of value that they see in themselves as being a good employee, which I, I think contrasts with some other places in the world, right? That they much more... Are more likely to see a job as a, you know a place that you go to 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 earn money as opposed mm. to like a really integral part of the person that you are kind of thing which i think is you know it's good it's good work-life balance here so yeah i think that was reflected in a lot of the uh, comments that we had on facebook you know we had a lot of comments because people have loved to spare time to write messages on facebook right, in this country because they're not working but uh, yeah some people said that there's a good work-life balance and there's no tend to agree and certainly what, what i notice is uh, that when people are at work or particularly when you have a day off during the week you say to people it's my day off this week or on your answer messages you say it's my day off and if you go on holiday you say I'm on holiday the next two weeks and when I was working in the UK you weren't allowed to use the word holiday you'd say I'm on annual leave or I'm not at my desk <laughs> yeah. because you know so being on holiday sound like you were slacking you right. know you should, you should be at yeah. work what do you think you're doing having two weeks to yourself yeah. how dare you and I think in, in the Dutch have a much more healthy and reasonable attitude to that that you know you work hard during your working hours but your, your, your leisure hours are your leisure hours to do other things with your life yeah and I also do feel like the Dutch are 
more efficient at work in the sense that like when they're at work they work like yeah. there's not a whole lot of like goofing off kind of stuff which i think i've seen a lot more in offices and other places yeah i definitely noticed i think you know, I, you know, people work longer hours uh, in the office i worked in the uk but a lot of time you're sitting at your desk but you weren't really working yeah and if you, if you work nine hours in a day you do the same amount of work because you do in an eight hour day because you just you know because you you build in time to sort of check facebook or your email or your profile or whatever and you, know, you find that dutch people tend to sort of shut all that off during their working hours and come back to it after they've left the office yeah have you two adopted a dutch working style uh, well, since I, you moved well not really because i work from home so i kind of t- tend to mix everything up anyway so uh i think so i mean i've definitely gotten much more comfortable with taking time off and not constantly checking my email while i'm on vacation but i definitely clock way more hours than i think most of my dutch counterparts do some of that is because you know i sort of like the work that i do and i don't kind of mind spending a bit more a bit more time on it but i definitely work more hours than my my dutch boyfriend does yeah i mean it's nice to be able to take three weeks of holiday and not have to constantly answer emails so you know there's a reason that i live and no one is complaining that you're not answering your emails right yeah no i do not when I'm working as a journalist um, and I'm trying to I'm trying to contact people about a story, uh, you can never get hold of anybody on Friday afternoon. Yeah, or some <laughs> Wednesday afternoons are or also Wednesday bad. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. Oh, Monday mornings. Monday mornings, yeah. yeah. So that, that it can be frustrating. I think if you need to be getting some stuff done, that's on the time deadline. <laughs> But, you know, the economy seems to be... Fun- I mean, the trains are overcrowded, so the economy's functioning. Yeah, that's the indication. Yeah. Updating you now on the story we brought you last week of a mademoiselle who fought her grade in court after she narrowly failed her French examination with 0.05 points. Unfortunately for her, the judge ruled on Wednesday her results will not be overturned. Early in the summer, teachers complained in the media about some of the questions of the VW exam. According to them, the exam was substandard, and some teachers even said they deviated from the official marking guidelines when a multiple-choice question contained two correct answers. The exam board awarded every student 0.1 points in compensation, but it wasn't sufficient for the girl from Brabant to pass. She will have to do a reset next year. Molly, did you pass your French exam? Uh, I did not have to take French in high school. I took Spanish, and I did pass my Spanish exam. My my Spanish was passable. Yeah, no, I think my Dutch is probably better now, so that should give you some indication of how 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 bad your Spanish is. Did you have French? I had French at school, yeah. I did, uh, did French is it common in uh, the UK to have French? No, French is kind of the standard second language that you learn in school. Yeah. Oh. So everyone learns French, and uh, but nobody actually speaks it. No, no, no me neither. How is your French, Paul? My, my French is uh, pretty bad. Yeah. I'm not a language guy. I had to choose two foreign languages. One of them was English that was standard, and then I had to choose another one. I, had, I could choose between German, French, um, Latin, and ancient Greek. I chose French for some reason, but I was really bad at it. That I passed was was a miracle. They should have sued the uh, the yeah, exam yes. board that I passed the exam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they could have given this girl your exam pass. In sport, it was a double Dutch success at the European Hockey Championships in Amsterdam as both the men's and women's teams won their respective finals against Belgium. The men, who lost 5-0 to the Belgians in the group stage, looked dead and buried at halftime but came back from 2-0 behind to triumph 4-2 in what was essentially a remake of Escape to Victory with hockey sticks and Belgians. The match was in the balance until Mirko Prausia, the top scorer in the whole competition, scored the fourth goal 17 seconds before time. The women had a more comfortable path to victory, beating the Belgians 3-0 to seal their ninth European title. Both bronze medal matches were won by England at the expense of Germany. So, uh, how about football? I hear there's some football news, Gordon. There was a football game last night, but uh, the Dutch uh, men continued their recent dismal form. They lost 4-0 to France in the Stade de France. Uh, Kevin Stroudman was sent off 
uh, on what was an ignominious night for Orania. But they're still in contention because Bulgaria pulled off a surprise win over Sweden, so that even though Bulgaria are now in third place and the Dutch are in fourth, there's only three points between those three teams, um, and Sweden and Bulgaria still have to come to Amsterdam in the last three qualifying games. So everything depends on Bulgaria? Uh, and actually, I think it depends on the Dutch, so oh. they've had it, sadly. But they've got home games Well, if it Bulgaria depends on the Sweden. Dutch, we will probably lose, and we will... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe home. the Dutch team should just uh, work on taking their shirts off for group photos <laughs> instead of playing football. Uh, perhaps we should just ask all the female uh, lionesses to, uh, to to come to the... Uh, yeah, perhaps they could play the in lieu for the men and yeah. see if they do any better. Yeah, yeah. or they could just take up hockey. Yeah, yeah. there's that also. <laughs> if you saw a camel in Castricum this week, you weren't hallucinating. Five camels escaped from the Rents Circus, which is currently visiting the North Holland town. Fortunately, when police arrived, the camels were found grazing in a nearby field and were easily convinced to head back to their tent. This isn't the first time the camels have gone for a walkabout. Last year, animal rights activists let the camels loose in Hochevein. The circus isn't sure if a similar thing happened this week or if the camels were able to escape their enclosure unassisted. This reminds me of an incident a few years ago in a uh, Limburg uh, village when uh, people called the police be- because they saw an elephant walking uh, uh, on the streets. So they thought the elephant escaped from the circus, but instead the elephant was uh, going for a walk with his uh, boss on a leash uh, through the village. I'm surprised that this guy did not realize that walking your elephant through a small Limburg town was not going to cause some cause sort a commotion, of problem. Yeah. yeah, you have to notify the, uh, the inhabitants. Yes. Uh, uh, and it has to be carrying ID as well. <laughs> the elephant? We'll be discussing fake news and cybersecurity after this word from our sponsors. Do you drive or ride a bike? Are you in the train or on the train? If you're producing text in English but aren't sure of just the right wording, M Squared can help you. M Squared is a digital publications company that can help you with all of your writing, editing, and translation needs. They have a combined 20 years experience crafting the perfect document from editing books to writing website copy. If you need help with your website text, brochure, thesis, press release and more, contact them at info at msqrd.com. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. In the Volkskund this week, Brigadier General Wilfried Rietdijk, who's not a Monty Python character but the Defence Minister's strategic advisor on cyber security, warned that the Netherlands wasn't doing enough to combat the flood of propaganda and fake news being spread around the world, particularly on cable TV channels, blogs and social media. And podcasts. <laughs> what are you suggesting, uh, Gordon? The camel story was fake news. The yes. camel story was fake news. It was a fake Trojan camel. Uh, Rietdijk suggested the government should fact-check news items and use a rating system so media outlets could show that the reports had been verified. He also said that Western nations are under threat from foreign powers that use propaganda and misinformation in a, quote, unending hybrid campaign. So has it become harder to distinguish real from fake news and what do we do to make sure our news sources are telling us the truth? I'd start by not listening to the Dutch News podcast. Yeah, Yeah. all these fake news camel stories. So many fake news camel stories. So has it become harder to distinguish real from fake news? 
Let's be I recognize fake news, I think. Well, I think you do, and most of the time, I suppose, it's fairly obvious. I think most of us that are sitting here are pretty big consumers of media and generally employ fairly good critical thinking skills. You know, like, we're not... I don't... I don't. I can't speak for you two, but I presume that this <laughs> is true, that you, you know, do more than just read the headlines and that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I do wonder about, you know, you see stuff pass you by on, on Facebook and stuff, and there have been times where I've sort of bought into something that seems like it could be true. I remember a particular uh, Herr Wilders protest photo that I thought was... Uh, <laughs> I, did I re- photoshopped mm. and I failed to mention it. And yeah, and I did not realize it was photoshopped. Yeah. And we both fell into it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not impossible to believe that uh, Wilders would have showed up for an anti... Uh, vegan bitterball protest in your tracks. <laughs> People include so, the photo yeah. in the liner notes. Yeah, uh, but that's the thing about fake news. I mean, the, the better, more sophisticated fake news does is quite sort of carefully tailored so yeah. that you, you believe it because you kind of want to believe it or it yeah. fits with your impression of what somebody would do. And so and then that kind of uh, fake news can catch on very easily. And then it's very hard to uh, count, counteract it as well. But I have to admit, so, sometimes I only read headlines too and then base my conclusions on that. That happens to me as well. Hmm. It does it happen to you sometimes yeah, too? Yeah, definitely. And, and it's yeah. partly just because of the sheer mass of stuff that's out there you know your twitter feed is constantly scrolling and updating you can't just read every single article that's linked to you a lot of time you will just see the, the tweet or the headline and you know you won't look any further because you're because you're moving on to the next thing in your mind already and sometimes on facebook you see a yeah. f- fake news yeah. item and you immediately recognize it as fake news because it comes from this obscure website or whatever mm. but i think the tricky part is that uh, especially foreign countries are doing their best to produce fake news that looks real mm. and that you think might be real right yeah well. and of course always a point when it then spills over into mainstream media is when it becomes harder to recognize it as fake news because i remember a few years ago there was um somebody set up an account in the name of the prime minister of poland and then tweeted a message that lech valenza who was a um, trade unionist in the 1980s had died so, so he put this tweet out lech valenza died and then the editor of one of the newspapers i used to work for tweeted that as well and that immediately le- then legitimizes it makes it harder to trace the original source yeah. and it turned out people actually went back and they found this original twitter account found that it only sent three tweets and it was obviously a fake. The more something gains traction in the in the mainstream media, the more ha- the harder it becomes to discredit. Yeah, and that has to do with the twenty four hour news cycle, right? Yeah. You see, you see, you see a tweet, you see a message, you see whatever a headline, and you immediately think we have to bring this now, otherwise people will go to another website. That's the thing; it's this kind of the scoop culture. You know, yeah. there's enormous temptation. You're under pressure as a journalist as well to try and break news faster than your competitors, and that means that often you skip over checking processes, or you think, "Well, I'll check it later." Look, when you check it later, it turns out to be a different story, or it turns out to be no story at all. But by then, of course it's already out there can't put the genie back in the bottle no so I think and it's fine if this happens with this shark in a Houston airport no something. highway it was on a highway, a highway. yeah um, this, this photo emerges with every every storm, every yeah. flood then it's fine but when it comes to serious things then you know it can become dangerous yeah, well, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the the use. I mean, sort of everyone kind of points the finger at Russia, which which seems to be true that there's a lot of like state organized and also maybe fake news production that's there. And there's been a lot of questions about this, especially in places like Ukraine, where you know a number of the you know it, essentially the annexation of Crimea was more or less driven by fake news, right? That like Russian 
sort of TV outlets were putting out all these stories that, like, in Kiev, they were murdering Russian speakers, and there was these stories about, like, murdering Russian babies and all this kinds of stuff, and people got so whipped up into a frenzy that they started demanding that Russia annex Crimea, and this is, you know, it has real-world consequences. Now, obviously, you know, fake news is not the only reason, you know, they weren't, it wasn't created, it, it was it was exacerbating underlying tensions mm-hmm. with that, but, like, ultimately, I mean, you know, people have died in this war, and people's lives are being affected by by that and you know i think there's like some fairly strong arguments that that russian meddling in the us elections impacted the the outcomes there so yeah so it does concern me but i i don't know that i think that it's gotten worse necessarily i mean i think governments have long used propaganda and and you know non-state actors have long used propaganda and at least in the us you know we had this long history of almost every single newspaper having some sort of serious political bent and you go back and you read some of these old you know they reference these old articles you know from the the 1800s and the early 1900s where it's just completely absurd like there was no fact-checking process there was no Mm. even idea that it was supposed to be objective right that that people that worked for a paper that supported this political party everything they wrote about the political party was great and everything they wrote about the opposition was terrible i mean they weren't they weren't even trying to be objective could you name that fake news i think i mean i think Mm. under this the concept now of what fake news is yes i mean i don't think that the term existed then this was just how journalism Work. was yeah. yeah but where their story is actually being put out like you know the, the stories you mentioned about people being murdered in uh, you know ukrainians murdering russians that they were just actually baseless and yeah. fundamentally not true yeah there was this um so so some of the information that i got from this has come from this podcast that i now can't remember the name of <laughs> but it's all about sort of like you know media and this the world we'll link to the podcast in the uh, in the liner notes but one of the things that they were talking about is there was this images of this baby being like crucified and they're very mm. very disgusting and, and terrible and people were claiming that this was being done by ukrainian police or ukrainian military members to a russian-speaking baby as like an example of what happens to some russian-speaking no. family right well it turns out that all of these images were taken from like tv show and like there was no mm. basis in reality. Mm. I mean, there's no legitimate allegations that yeah. Ukrainians are going around murdering Russian-speaking babies in Ukraine, right? Yeah. And so this is completely fabricated. Yeah, and that, that has echoes of all the stories that used to do the rounds, like, I don't know, maybe 100, 150 years ago or whatever, you know, about, about what Jews allegedly right. did to children yeah. and you know, people in Western European countries. And that was all absolutely fake. And we saw where that led to. Right. You know, so that kind of, yeah, systematic, repeated kind of demonization of one particular group in society can have, you know, disastrous. The thing about fake news is that, you know, the more... You get of it, it kind of leads towards a more kind of polarizing, fact-free climate where it's very hard to actually maintain a kind of any kind of rational opinion because uh, you know because there's this constant tide of of stories being put out that are designed to kind of whip up hysteria and make people prioritize emotion over you know, fact and reason. One of the stories that um, I think uh, Wheatdyke actually uh, mentioned was a story that was. Uh, circulating in Germany about uh, immigrants who'd raped a Russian girl and it turned out to be absolutely false. This story was doing the rounds for months and months and months before it was actually could be proved that, that, that it hadn't actually happened. Is this approach of having the government sort of fact check news media like this sort of screams to me of like really like fascist era propaganda. Yeah this so. is one of the proposal, proposals by EDAC right, right. to yeah. have the government fact check 
news or um, a flag certain news items right. as fake news or not. But yeah. is that something we want? I I don't think I so. I don't think so too. No, no I don't think so on, on, on that level or just on a practical level. I mean, what journalist is going to agree to hand over their notes to the security services to be vetted? It's just not, not going to happen. No. Yeah, and a lot of news, you know, a lot of things, that, a lot of the work that you do as a, as, as a journalist is stuff that's critical of the government or stuff that the government just doesn't want to come out. So how are they going to f fairly and impartially judge a news story that is, you know, that is deeply critical and has potentially serious consequences for, for government agencies. Yeah, what happens when, yeah. you know, journalists are doing stories about the Bonnich's affair and the baby yeah. day doesn't want this to come out, right? I mean, like, there's just no, the incentive structure is just really poor. But then what do you do? I mean, so, like, Facebook now has this thing where they're trying to, like, flag fake news sites. I mean, what is the answer to any of this? Yeah, like, but I think certainly, you know, having it vetted by, the, uh, by any government agency and certainly not the intelligence services isn't the answer because, you know, your whole legitimacy as a news organization comes from the fact that you're that you're independent right. that, you know that you don't work for the government yeah. so you know that, that that blurs that line your legitimacy is shot through right yeah so you have yeah. to build a trusted name as a news organization or as a journalist yeah. so if you put your name under an article the readers should know oh, that journalist is trustworthy so yeah. i can trust this article yeah. but that doesn't change the fact that a lot of people do not have any trust in in the news in the or news. in the media. Yeah. Exactly. So where does that come from? I mean, I think that that comes from a long line of campaigning uh, from certain factions, mostly kind of on the political right, who have complained that the media is, is biased, mostly because the media has debunked a lot of their inane ideas. I mean, this has particularly happened sort of in the last 20 years, kind of in the U.S., right, where there's been this pushback against, like, the quote-unquote liberal bias in the media. And, you know, to some extent there is validity to that argument in that, you know, most media professionals are well-educated and live in big cities, and those people are more likely to be politically liberal. But I don't think that that's necessarily an indication that they're sort of being, you know, ridiculously biased against sort of, yeah, right-wing kind of conservative ideas. But yeah, there's been a long sort of like push of this kind of misinformation. And I mean, you see this in lots of places. You saw this in Brexit that they were pushing against some of the reports mm. that were there. I mean, you saw this in places here where they were pushing against you know some of the more left-wing ideas that were that were coming out I mean and you see it on the other side too so this isn't just necessarily a right-wing thing but there is like this discussion about what the validity is of the you know the media the US president tweeted what two weeks ago a picture of a train running over a CNN reporter right like this is Mm -hmm. This it goes all the way to the top. This isn't just like some you know Dutch news commenters like complaining that we're fascists. Yeah, uh, and there's also another problem related that, that, that's come along at the same time, which is that the, the media is on enormous pressure on on its resources. Right. Uh, but partly because of the rise of the internet and advertising has, has collapsed, and therefore yeah. there's less revenue, there's less money in the in the industry, and therefore there are fewer journalists, and particularly yeah. there are fewer levels of. I mean, fact checking has become incredibly difficult to do because you just don't have the staff anymore. Right. You, know, you don't have a whole team of people working on a story. It's often one journalist or a couple working on the fly yeah. at speed and of course everything's sped up because yeah. you know you've got social media uh, on um, on your back who are trying to compete with social media uh, there's been a certain amount of misjudgments I think by the media particularly trying to compete with things like Twitter on speed you, you can never you, know, you can never break a story faster than the guy who happens to be standing on the street corner where the building catches fire you just right. can't do it yeah. but a lot of you know, news organisations thought they could so that, 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 that's one problem so there just isn't the resources there and then that obviously means that I think the balance has tilted between you know so much more 
resources now are spent on public relations and PR compared to what's actually spending power that uh, news organisations have, that becomes increasingly difficult because you're just bombarded with information from corporations of right. increasingly slick professional PR operations that demand that they have that their point of view is is heard, and then actually to be able to stand back from that and make an impartial judgment becomes almost impossible. You know, we we we've talked a lot about the problems that sort of Twitter and social media and stuff like that have caused, but there's also been I I think a really good outcome of a lot of this stuff, which is it's given rise to a lot of voices which have not been traditionally heard in the media also. Mm. And that's definitely because there's more, it's much easier for everyone to publish now. There's certainly some voices that we never used to hear. For example, I think reporting on disability has changed an awful lot in the last 20 years. Well, there's lots of really good legal bloggers out there. Yeah. And in the past, you know, they would only ever have the opportunity to write for like law journals who would be read by a handful of people within their own profession. And now, you know, they can actually have an input into stories uh, about, you know, you know, legal affairs, um, for example, things like Brexit. There's some very good legal bloggers talking, arguing about the legal issues in, in uh, the constitutional law issues in them so that you get a much better informed debate. Yeah. So there are definitely upsides as well. Um, uh, yeah, indeed. And if you ha- uh, if you have a question, uh, as as a reader, you're not, uh, for example, me, I'm not a lawyer or I, I don't have any uh, legal background, but when I have a question regarding some legal issues, constitutional issues, I can just reach out to a, uh, a constitutional lawyer on Twitter and mm. ask him a question and he will answer me. So Twitter has definitely some, some upsides. And um, what you say, these blogs, you, 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 you hear so many different voices now. Everyone has a blog nowadays, as we've seen last mm. week. When, yes, uh, but mine is one of the best. <laughs> With the 41 uh, expat blogs 42. in the Netherlands, 42. 42. Um, so everyone has a blog, and you can you can you can hear everyone's voice if you want to. You just have to reach out. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email at podcast at dutchnews.nl. My thanks to Molly Quell and Paul Peters. I'm Gordon Darroch, and we'll be back next week.